is uh, uh, Dr. Peter Wilson, uh, who's co-authored a, uh, a paper with uh, Rajon Martin, who's not here. Okay. Uh, Dr. Wilson is a psychiatrist uh, practicing in Macclesfield area in the northwest. His, uh, his presentation is entitled Phenomenology and Causal Entities in Psychiatry. Right, you. Um, well, uh, I'll start by uh, thanking the BSP for having us here to speak in uh, Canterbury. Um, as I say, I did uh, prepare this talk uh, along with Prof Nathan, who'd very much like to have been here. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he's got uh, unavoidable work commitments. Um, so we approach this talk from a very practical and a very clinical point of view. Um, firstly, because both of us are practicing clinicians, um, and it's in our nature and in our training. Um, but secondly, and more importantly, because it's, it's our contention that the discipline of phenomenology uh, is vital to the practice of modern psychiatry. Um, a very brief bit about ourselves. As I say, um, we're both full-time psychiatrists in the NHS. Um, Taj Nathan's a consultant specialising in forensic psychiatry, uh, practising in Cheshire. And I'm a, I'm a trainee registrar psychiatrist and I practise all over the northwest. Um, together we specialise in the treatment of mental illness such as schizophrenia, depression and bipolar disorder. That, that's our bread and butter. Um, but our central contention uh, in today's talk is that when interviewing a patient in clinic, which is what we do every day, um, a rich and empathic understanding of their story through the phenomenological approach uh, to inquiry is vital in understanding their psychopathology and thus their disorder. So, right at the beginning, we make the following statements. Firstly, we believe that the current model of psychopathology and indeed nosology probably doesn't reliably map onto the reality of the etiopathology of mental disorder. That is, it's probably not reflective of true disease states. Secondly, there is a need to refine our understanding of psychopathology through a phenomenological approach. The current model is oversimplified and under-nuanced. A new model of what we're calling phenomenological psychopathology will give a richer, more precise, and more patient-centred approach. So, for example, the current system might classify auditory hallucinations as internal versus external, or second or third person. A new phenomenological approach might also take into account factors such as emotional significance to the voice hearer, specific content, change and development of the auditory relation over time, uh, or whether there are single or multiple voices, and what triggered them, for example. Thirdly, we suggest a more detailed phenomenological psychopathology in combination with a focus on neurobiology can lead us closer to the causal entities underpinning mental disorder. Fourthly, we recognise a complicating factor might be that clinicians might need to unlearn some of the current system psychopathology in order that we are fully able to appreciate a new model. And, and sort of asking a clinician to unlearn years of training isn't going to be easy, uh, and I absolutely include myself in this, that it could be difficult to do. Finally, we see a new model will require an updated nosology to house it. Um, we suspect this may need to be a dimensional rather than a categorical approach in order to accommodate an increased tolerance of co-diagnosis 
and of disorders which cross diagnostic boundaries. So I'm talking about the future of ICD-10, which is going to be ICD-11, of course, and DSM. We're on DSM-5 at the moment, so looking forward to DSM-6. Um, so I'll aim to demonstrate our argument through first describing what, as doctors, we do at the moment, then second, having a brief look, a very brief look at the theoretical underpinnings of phenomenology and psychiatry, and that's something I, I fully expect um, yourselves would know a lot more about than me, so I'll only touch on that briefly. Um, then finally... I'll argue that a new approach can be used to get closer to the etiology uh, underpinning psychiatric illness. It's in this sense that our approach differs to that of Jasper's, as we see a contemporary phenological approach is helpful not only in descriptive psychopathology, the so-called static understanding, but also establishing the origins of mental disorder, the so-called genetic understanding. Um, so first of all, to describe what I mean, uh, by a contemporary phenomenological approach. Um, there are, of course, ontological, epistemological, hermeneutic, Jasperian and Husslerian definitions, but the one that seems most relevant and indeed most exciting to us is the term uh, proposed by Nan Nancy Andreasen in her excellent article in 2006, which was published in the Schizophrenia Bulletin entitled DSM, and the death of phenomenology in, phenomenology in America, an example of unintended consequences. It's here that Andreasen describes a definition of phenomenology in what she calls the contemporary context. She sees the term as simply referring to the study of psychopathology, broadly defined, including symptoms, signs, and their underlying thoughts and emotions. She goes on to say that when used in this way, Phenomenology provides the basis for nosology, or the development of disease definitions, diagnostic categories, and dimensional classifications. But what would interest me, is this something a BSP audience would recognise as their own subject, or is it too broad a definition and too far away from Jasper's? So, I'll proceed by talking first of all how we as doctors talk and more importantly, listen to patients in clinic at the moment. Modern psychiatric training involves learning a language and rules of psychopathology, which was developed over 100 years ago. And in the UK, as trainees, we all learn the same model based on two textbooks, Fish and Sims. The difficulty is that at the moment, we think that meaningful nuance can be lost because we feel obliged to force what a patient says into a predetermined model even if the fit can sometimes be poor. Myself and Professor Nathan have conducted previous research which has led us to question some of the current widely acceptable, accepted rules of psychopathology. So to give an example, clinicians often give more weight to auditory hallucinations heard in the external space rather than those heard in the internal space. That is, more weight is given to those voices heard outside the mind as if, it, as if from the room, compared to patients who recognise their voices as coming from inside their mind. Um, however, the fact is, there is insufficient research to be sure this is correct. Uh, and we feel in particular that the, the principles of the evidence-based era of medicine haven't been applied to the current psychopathological model simply because it was developed over 100 years ago. So this leads us on to a related problem, that in the current model, um, 
the current model we use goes hand in hand with the categorical, and as we see it, in some respects, outdated diagnostic system. The, current, uh, the, the system's categorical nature means there's a very low tolerance of dual diagnosis, i.e. someone having personality disorder and psychosis, or of conditions whose etiopathology might, in reality, cross diagnostic boundaries. Furthermore, the current checklist model makes it all too easy for us to be guilty of reification and diagnostic literalism as described by Kendler, with us slipping into the belief that schizophrenia is a real thing and that someone has it rather than merely meeting the criteria for a checklist of concepts and diagnoses, which ourselves, not forgetting, ourselves predetermine these. We wonder, in order to achieve a true and rich understanding of psychopathology, more reflective of etiopathology, we might need to learn to forget elements of this classical model. But back to where we are now. A patient tells me they are hearing harrowing, screaming voices talking about them. And I tell them they're experiencing third-person auditory hallucinations and that they have schizophrenia. So there are three levels of abstraction, from the patient experience uh, of screaming voices to the psychopathological level concept of auditory hallucinations and then to the tertiary diagnostic level concept of schizophrenia. There is a translation from vivid patient experience to medical language and then follows diagnosis or categorization. I've described the form but quite possibly diminished the, the importance of the content or at least made it opaque. So we've, we, we feel that we're changing the, fi the fine grain of human experience into an abstract objectified concept that can lose important nuance and meaning which may be important and relevant to the patient experience, as well as indeed to a psychiatric formulation. An analogy might be using architectural styles to describe a house. For example, you might describe a house as classical, neoclassical, gothic or modern. One gets a sense as to the broad brushstrokes of the house, what the house might look like, but one wouldn't be able to appreciate what it might be like to live in the house or understand individual memories and emotional connections an inhabitant might have with different rooms. So distinguishing between modern and classical styles might be similar to distinguishing between persecutory and grandiose delusions, or third-person, second-person, or hallucinations. But we still wouldn't know the nuance of the voices of the delusions, where these came from, how they've changed over time, or importantly, the significance and emotional resonance to the patient. So we're certainly not arguing against some form of classifying system of psychopathology. Indeed, we view this as essential, but we are arguing that we need to gain a deeper and richer understanding of the psychopathology from the patient perspective, which can then lead to a more subtle appreciation of psychiatric illness, which might cross diagnostic boundaries or indeed evolve with time. So we think there's a lot of richness in the accounts for a number of reasons. Um, one is that the system we use is largely based on objective form and not content. And, and further, the classifying form we use can be broad and unrefined and may well group patients together who have very, difficult, sorry, very different experiences. So the psychopathology can be un unrefined because our concept of diagnosis can, on occasions, be unrefined. So 
That is, since the introduction of DSM-3 in 1980, and by DSM-3, I'm talking about one of the major manuals of um, sort of diagnosis in psychiatry. In the UK, we use ICD, and in the States, they use DSM. We're now on five, but, but in, in 1980, DSM-3 was a real pivotal moment in the United States. Um, what we feel is that sometimes we can be guilty of, of putting patients into a handful of diagnoses, as I said, based on broad brushstrokes and checklists, <coughs> which actually cover a huge range and diversity of hu human experience. But we do need to remember that we do feel diagnostic manuals have a place because it gives replicability due to its common language, which allows professionals to communicate with each other. So another potential reason for loss of richness in patient accounts is that if I've established a delusion or an auditory hallucination as the form, then the medication I give might be the same regardless of the content. And as such, we've arrived at a system in which once we've established the form, we tend to stop because we've already established a treatment pathway. And also, as you can, can imagine, in the time pressures we deal with in the NHS and in busy clinics, a system whereby you can stop at the form is actually clinically quite useful and affords a certain efficiency uh, and indeed money saving. So the checklist diagnostic system gives replicability, probably, but validity I'm not quite sure, because as we stated earlier, we suspect current models of psychopathology probably don't map very well onto emerging theories of the etiopathology of mental illness. So earlier, I alluded to Andreessen's 2004 article. So Nancy Andreessen's a very impressive figure. I don't know if you, any, any of you heard her speak. I, I managed to hear her speak earlier in London this year. She currently holds the chair of psychiatry at the University of Iowa has been a huge figure in American psychiatry, in, indeed in world psychiatry in the past 30 years. It, it, interestingly, prior to her career in psychiatry, she was actually a professor of Renaissance literature for five years in Iowa, so she's had a very, very, very career. But in her article of 2004, looking at the publication of DSM-3, um, she notes that the, the intention behind it was that it would standardise diagnosis, and thus improve uh, reliability but that it would also shift American psychiatry away from uh, sort of psychoanalysis onto brain science. However, she writes, the ultimate painful paradox, the study of phenomenology and nosology that was so treasured by the Mid-Atlantics, and by Mid-Atlantic she means the, the Mid-Atlantic universities in the US, who created the DSM, is no longer seen as important or relevant. Research in phenomena phenomenology is a, is a dying enterprise. She continues, DSM has a dehumanising impact on the practice of psychiatry. History taking, the central evaluation tool in psychiatry, has frequently been reduced to the use of DSM checklists. DSM discourages clinicians from getting to know the patient as an individual person because of its dryly empirical approach. She goes on to say, the word is out. If you want to succeed as a serious scientist, you need to do something fairly basic. And in this, she's talking about phenomenology. And bear in mind who this is coming from. This is someone uh, for whom 30, for the last 30 years has, has been sort of pioneering the use of MRI in, in psychiatry and the mapping of brain science. So, but we must, of course, remember that those who created the DSM-3 back in 1980 never intended it to be the totality of psychiatry. It was a bare-bones checklist which they wanted us to add. So, so as clinicians, we need to take the fault of this, and this is how we've been using it. It's not the fault of the creators of the manual. Um, but before I move on, I do want to be clear that I'm not part of an anti-psychiatry movement. 
A robust classification system and common language is vital for psychiatrists to communicate with each other and to diagnose patients. But we maintain that at the moment, clinicians are often using a blunt scalpel or watching our patients in low resolution. We suggest that it's the richness of a phenomenological approach which contains psychopathological interpretation from analogue to colour HD. So, I want to give just a really, really brief three-minute overview of, uh, of a little bit of the, the, the provenance of uh, the theory of phenomenological movement in psychiatry. So, it was Brum et al. who noted that the movement came about as a response to the exclusively third-person approach uh, exemplified by psychiatrists such as Kraepelin. But even in, within the phenomenological movement, there have been differ differing approaches and differing voices. Jaspers was sceptical about a phil philosophical uh, psychopathology compared to Shaler. Then there followed the structural approach of Minkowski and the existential approach of Binswang, as Binswanger. But it was Jaspers, who was active in the first half of the 20th century, who was described by Sass and Pienkos as the first phenomenological psychopathologist. As Brumatel go on to point out, Jaspers did seem to sense that when there was when there were the observational and reductive methods of the nature of sciences were applied wholesale to mental illness, something important was being uh, being lost. So we see that there was actually an unsuccessful urging urging of phenomenology approach uh, in psychiatry, but we wonder if now we're on the cusp of, of a resurgence. We note with interest. Up, up the Grove's 2015 article examining the literature and auditory hallucinations in which she suggests that the method for eliciting a greater understanding of the experience will be through phenomenology. And it's just not something that, um, as, a, as, a, as a practicing psychiatrist, you hear much about. So we're hoping that we're, we're on the precipice of a, as a, a sort of a, a phenomenological revolution in psychiatry at the moment. So I hope I'm doing all right for time. I'm trying to rattle through it because I know it's lunch coming up. Uh, and that people are probably getting hungry. So I appreciate I've got a diff difficult slot. So in the last section of the talk, what I want to look at is how a phenomenological approach can complement biological research, and the two can go hand in hand rather than being at odds with each other. Indeed, we see it as being entirely possible uh, that a phenomenological patient account can inform the direction of neurobiological research. So if we look at two accounts of patient problems through which phenomenological inquiry we're able to get closer to the underlying disease processes which un underlie schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. So let's first look at a patient who has a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. It'd be worth familiarising yourself with the ICD-10 criteria for this. I don't know how familiar you are with someone who has a diagnosis of that. But for example, if you look at a diagnostic manual, it might say that they have disturbances in and around uncertainty about self-image, liability to become involved in intense and unstable relationships, excessive efforts to avoid abandonment, recurrent threats or acts of self-harm, as well as chronic feelings of emptiness. Let's look at a common ward scenario of an inpatient with borderline personality disorder who, following a refusal by nursing staff, to agree to the patient's request for medication to ease distress, return shortly thereafter to ask for treatment for self-inflicted cuts to the arm. One explanation, which not uncommonly would be offered by clinicians, by us doctors and nurses, 
is that annoyed by the nurse's refusal to administer medication, often lorazepam or haloperidol, the patient decides to engineer a situation that makes it difficult for the nurse to ignore him and therefore cuts his arm. This explanatory account relies on the assumption that the patient knowingly acting in a way to influence others, i.e. manipulation, including uh, to secure the attention of others, i.e. attention-seeking. But we've attained several phenomenological accounts from patients, crucially without leading them, and that's, that's really key here, about scenarios such as this, which are strikingly similar to each other, and an amalgamation of which would go like this. The patient experiences the initial change in mood state from baseline to negative as a random event. At such times, he feels the need to be certain about what's going on to reduce a sense of a detachment and therefore approaches staff. He knows medication changes the negative affect or mood he's experiencing and medication is a concrete way of conveying distress which he struggles to articulate more directly. He knows staff are busy and sort of understands and agrees when they say medication shouldn't be first line for managing his mood, but nevertheless feels a powerful rejection when he's told to try and cope with it on his own. He goes, but when he is on his own, a sense of depersonalisation and aloneness is overwhelming to him. He needs to bring it to an end and he knows that cutting himself abruptly stops these feelings. When he cuts himself, his feelings suddenly change and initially for the better, but then he feels bad for what he's done and needs to seek medical attention, steri-strips or stitching for his arm. Now, let's look at this phenomenological account from a neurobiological process account or a model underlying it. Okay. Um, so, the account, um, so if we just look very briefly about that, research shows that emotional dysregulation uh, and impaired self-soothing um, capacities are characteristic of borderline personality disorder and therefore the initial change in mood state from baseline to negative should be expected. Research also demonstrates that this patient group exhibits an over-reliance on actions rather than stated intentions to understand the mental state of others. They're more likely to demand a physical response by others, in this case the offering uh, of uh, medication rather than uh, an utterance of verbal concern. Thus we see a phenomenological account can guide us in terms of a neural, neuropsychological exploration. And we also see the same can occur in Capgras syndrome. That's a, a syndrome of delusional misidentification um, where a patient is able to identify and recognise a familiar person, such as a spouse or parent, but experiences that person as unfamiliar leading to the bizarre conclusion that their family member has in fact been replaced by an imposter. And we see that in looking at phenomenological accounts from these patients, you can then inform neuro neurobiological re research. Because indeed what the patient actually tells you when they describe their symptoms is what later is revealed in neurobiological research. So, just to sum up, I know I'm out of time. So, what I would say, in conclusion, we're proposing a model of what we're calling phenomenological psychopathology, that this has a more nuanced approach to describing patient problems and it will help us get closer to the etiopathology underlying mental disorder and will inform a new, more refined nosology and diagnostic system. So what I'm saying is that phenomenology will bring us closer, so it will bring us from the analogue era to 4K HD. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for having me. Sorry, I have to rattle through it. <laughs>